Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're going to do something a little bit different today because of the breaking news. Um, uh, I really had wanted to, to devote today's bo- uh, podcast to the weird decisions by the weird concurrence by Clarence Thomas uh, in, a, in a case involving uh, the internet platforms. Uh, talk about Section 230, the Republican Party's bizarre turn into trust busting. And so we're going to do that anyway. We're going to be joined later on the podcast by Baron Zoka, who is the president of Tech Freedom, to talk about all of that. We're going to have a very, very extensive conversation. But of course, we had breaking news. Um, one of the more consequential verdicts that we have experienced in decades came down yesterday. Uh, you all know about it. Uh, the entire nation was uh, holding its breath and uh, in the Derek Chauvin case, uh, guilty on all counts. It was really an extraordinary moment. I, 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 I always you know, push back against uh, hype. This is the biggest. This is the biggest. But you really had the sense that this was uh, this could have been explosive uh, to say this was one of the most dangerous moments for uh, the country. If, if it had gone the other way, I don't think is is really overstating. It certainly would have been a crisis for the Biden administration. Uh, so let's we, we're going to start off by talking about that, uh, the Derek Chauvin case, the fallout. And uh, joining me to discuss this is our colleague, Ben Parker, who has a fantastic piece up on the bulwark, uh, put it up yesterday about anti anti chauvinism. So first of all, Ben, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about uh, this breaking news. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about it. So what is anti anti chauvinism? So it's the same phenomenon that we have been seeing and you have been cataloging in great detail for, what, more than four years now of people on the extremely online right uh, started with anti-anti-Trumpism. They, you know, weren't, of course, pro-Trump. That would be unseemly or, you know, it would clash with their, you know, closely held conservative principles and all that. But, you know, really it was the anti-Trumpists who radicalized them. And we're seeing the same thing on the extremely online right in reaction to the Derek Chauvin uh, conviction. Uh, People who, uh, you know, seem incapable of just saying, well, you know, justice was done here and this seems like the right verdict and it's fine. And instead, the emerging narrative very quickly after the verdict was announced was that this was all somehow rigged and that it was cancel culture or that somehow, you know, some combination of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden and Maxine Waters and, I don't know, probably Don Lemon and who knows, maybe Hugo Chavez and Dominion Voting Systems too, uh, sort of teamed up to pressure this jury and to influence them into reaching a verdict that, you know, I think we all thought was... uh, we all thought was pretty reasonable. And, you know, they're not pro-chauvin because that would also be uh, unsavory. So it's, it's anti-anti-chauvinism, which is apparently the new, the new standard of the uh, right, right, right-wing commentary. Yeah, and I, I have some sound bites on all of this, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with whether I should actually say this because it will strike some people as uncivil. But, you know, I was going through your piece, looking at sort of the bitter response, uh, you know, lashing out at at, at the Maxine Waters and, and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi. And look, there's always, you know, some reason, there's always something you can, you know, you, you can point to, you know, should Maxine Waters have been more circumspect? Yes. You know, should uh, oh, yeah. Joe, Joe Biden have, have, you know, called the shot earlier? Uh, n- no. Um, but um, it is interesting that disconnect from this whole question of, 
what the trial was about, uh, the you know, police brutality, whether there was justice, whether we believed what we actually saw, uh, whether or not this was an act of police murder. And my this is my uncivil comment. I get a sense that they're deeply disappointed that their narrative isn't going to play out. And their narrative was that there were going to be riots and that somehow the Democrats were responsible for this. And the Democrats were the party of racial disorder. And they're sort of like, ah, damn. You know, we had set this up. Ben Shapiro's newsletter had four items about Maxine Water, Maxine Waters yesterday morning. You could just see where they were going to go um, on this and the, as an opportunity. And instead, here you have a nation relieved and celebrating the conviction of a cop who murdered a black man in plain sight. And they're having a hard time. You know, I think, you know, grasping, you know, where do, what do you say? What do you do um, when, in fact, uh, they wanted to talk about something else? You know what I'm talking about here? I mean, and, and it does seem like this anti-anti-chauvinism, this lashing out at the media and anybody else that thinks this was a big deal has really become, as you put it, the latest article of faith for conservatives in good standing, in, certainly in, 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 in Trump world. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you're absolutely right about sort of their uh, – what? Not quite eager anticipation of violence. It's almost like, you know, the the weatherman right before a big snowstorm comes in and he's talking about like, oh, everything's going to be shut down. and It's going to be really intense and there's going to be so much snow. So prepare now. And you can tell it's like a little bit foreboding, but also like he's kind of excited. And that that was the tenor of the tweets that we saw and some of the other comments we saw. Uh, leading up to the conviction uh, announcement that it was, you know, oh, I, um, I, 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 someone said, uh, you know, I can't, you know, wait for the riots in Manhattan tonight or, you know, I'm sure Minneapolis is going to be so peaceful. And then, like, I don't know, Charlie, like, it's the next morning. Have you uh, have you seen any riots Are American cities on fire? I mean, no wonder they're disappointed. They're uh, they were they were building up to be able to. Uh, well, well I mean, we all know what they were really trying to say, right? Well, Tucker Carlson sees this as really the end of civilization, that we've given up on civilization. Now, you think I've taken that out of context. I, to give the people a flavor of what's going on on um, right-wing media, let's just play a, play a little bit of a soundbite of the, of the brain trust on Fox News. Tucker Carlson, who – look, Tucker Carlson can have anybody he wants, right, on the show, right? So he yeah, brings right. on Candace Owens to talk about this, which tells you something about – him, but also about the level of this conversation. So let's play about a minute of this. Uh, Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens are uh, really unhappy last night, and, and this is what they had to say. Candace Owens, you'd think in a country like ours, very top, I mean, this is the most first world country that's ever been, you'd think the most civilized and the most just. Here you have to consider a murder case through the lens of politics. When you get to that point, haven't you already given up Civilization? Given up civilization. Well, that's correct. Totally. And what we're really seeing is mob justice. And, and that's really oh. what happened with this entire trial. This was not a trial about George Floyd or Derek Chauvin. This was a trial about whether right. the media uh, was powerful enough to create a simulation and decide upon a narrative absent any facts, whether it was powerful enough to repeat showing and talking huh? about a nine minute clip that came from somebody's cell phone yes. without adding any context, without showing the full, you know, the full police video, which they could have released. They refused to release the full body cam, which would have added more clarity. 
um, to the fact that the media was lying. You know, the media came out. Let's not forget this, Tucker. The media came out and told us that this was a man who was just getting his life together. He was a good, you know, good member of society. And he got mixed up because a racist white police officer had it out for him and, and killed him. All of that fell apart. All of the what? facts came out, and all of that fell apart. We now know, of course, that he had enough fentanyl in him. It was three times the lethal dosage, three times lethal dosage in him when he died. But nobody cares because the media was successful in putting out a narrative, and they. Uh, do you notice anything about that, Ben? Hmm. I mean, what the fuck? There was a trial. It was televised. There was evidence. There was testimony. There was all kinds of opportunities. This is not the media. This wasn't a story on CNN. This was a full-fledged criminal trial. And the entire world got to see all of this evidence. They got to see the video. The defense had the opportunity to present any video evidence they have. They had their own witnesses. I mean, it was so over the evidence was so overwhelming that the jury didn't take that long to come back unanimously saying that uh, Derek Chauvin was guilty of murder, all three counts, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's Candace Owen still going on her on on the on the talking points that we had no idea what really happened. But it was the media. And so, you know, it, it, there's a perfect example of being locked into the narrative despite actual reality. Yeah. And it's almost hard to call it a narrative. I mean, if we're, you know, it's she's not really telling a story, you know, here's what really happened. As much as it is, as we've seen so many times, throwing enough dust in the air that you lose your orientation, right? Like, is there, is there, Somewhere in the law where it says, oh, well, it's actually not a crime to suffocate people if they have drugs in their system. Did I did I miss that loophole somewhere? Yeah. Right. I mean, I I didn't. I, yeah, I, I this not whole question the about the drugs in the system was discussed extensively during this trial. This was not something that was glossed over. Right. I mean, this you had lots of evidence. Many days were spent dealing with that issue. Yeah, or the idea that, you know, oh, well, they say he's an upstanding member of the community. Look, I mean, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. That That is immaterial. You're not allowed to murder people because you think that they're bad for the community, right? Like, this is a murder trial. Murder. That's the that's what's, at the, that's what's the question here. Not, you know, how good a person was George Floyd and did he deserve to live or die? That's not how this works. Not how it works. So – here, here's a strange moment, and I just, I just want to throw this out because I'm I'm genuinely wondering the the Tucker laugh thing. If people haven't heard this, I I tweeted out what what's with Tucker's laugh, and it's sort of a Joker like thing. And you could kind of tell that Tucker was in a really bad mood last night about all of this. He has an expert on. This is a very short clip. He has an expert on who is not telling him what he wants to hear. There's somebody who's telling him that uh, you know, Derek Chauvin was exercising excessive force and. Um, listen to this because Tucker Carlson cuts the guy off, just doesn't want to hear it. I mean, the guy's trying to explain what he, what he means. And Tucker Carlson not only, um, drop kicks the guy, but there's this weird moment where he laughs. Like this, this is play this. The scene, I, I just think that it was excessive and and it it shouldn't happen. And what I'd like to say, the guy who did it looks like he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so that's more my concern. Look, but I appreciate look, look, you coming look, on. Ed Gavin, thank look, you. Look. Nope, done. Thank you. What the hell? 
Uh, the, 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 the People might think that I dropped that in the the, the wild Joker like maniacal laugh. No, that that's Tucker Carlson. <laughs> I have no words, Charlie. I mean, I I always you know I grew up on Disney movies. I always thought the maniacal laugh was you know a little over the top. Oh come on, no one does that. Whew, okay, apparently it's a real thing. Now I got to well, readjust yeah. my worldview. Well, also, and the whole country is is boarded up. Now, I I, I did sense some real disappointment about uh, about this. So, you know, I just step back from this. This was um, this was a, a real. I mean, I, I have to say that my reaction was just tremendous relief when this verdict came down, because the alternative would have been such um a damning commentary on the criminal justice system. Look, I mean, even right now, the conviction of cops is extremely rare. Um, I was reading one account. There's been only seven murder convictions of police officers for fatal uh, police shootings since 2005. Only seven. That suggests that the chances of killing by the police leading to a murder conviction are about one in 2,000. And yet what we this the George Floyd case was different for so many reasons. Number one, the most obvious is that it was it was videotaped. It was captured. We could see it with our own eyes. Nine minutes. This was not a a you know split second decision by a cop whose judgment was questionable. Uh, it was it was so clear. The evidence was so overwhelming. And had he walked from this, um, there would have been an explosion and it would have been an understandable. I'm not saying it's justifiable and I'm not saying I'm not justifying violence. I'm saying that you have an entire generation of young people, uh, including obviously uh, young African-Americans who um, would have seen this as an act of gross injustice. This would this would be a defining moment in American uh, ju- the justice system and in race relations the the black lives matter movement that grew out of the the death the murder of george floyd is one of the largest this country has ever seen it had worldwide significance and i was thinking as i was sitting waiting for the verdict to come down no one case should carry this much weight no one case should have this much impact but it did but it was a tremendous relief what, what was your reaction yeah, I, I think relief is right. Um, you know, I, I texted someone after they, you know, read I think the first guilty count um, that you know I I uh, I didn't realize I'd been holding my breath um, <laughs> and exhaled. Uh, and you're right; like it is just one case. Um, maybe you know it changes the system a little bit. Maybe we're sort of you know it'll change juries and it'll maybe make prosecutors a little more willing to put the time and energy and resources into prosecuting cops. I don't know that the incentives are aligned that way. Um, you know, so no, I, I don't, no, I don't, I, I don't I, think I, we're, it, we're done with this by, by any means, but uh, relief is right. But, but it is only the one case and it's like, it, it, we're not anywhere close to coming to grips with this this issue. I mean, that that's that's the problem. I think there's always a tendency to think, okay, well, we handled that. We got justice in this particular case. But you know that if there had not been videotape, if there had not been that group of bystanders that uh, that you know called the cops on the cops, that uh, that taped this in, in many ways, that uh, that testified in that trial, 
that this thing would have absolutely disappeared. I, I mean, I was rereading the statement by the Minneapolis police that they had issued right after George Floyd died. I mean, it's it's amazing. Man dies after medical incident during police interaction. And you read that and there's no indication that there would be any controversy about this whatsoever. So this is one of those cases where you wonder, you know, I, I, in my newsletter day, I quote Will Smith, who said, um, you know, racism is not getting worse. It's getting filmed. Mm-hmm. And I keep coming back to how many other incidents occurred that didn't play out this way because we didn't see it because the evidence was not this overwhelming, but right in your face. And I just don't know. So we may um, get an answer to that pretty soon. Uh, you know, just before we started filming this morning, we got reports. Uh, I think I think uh, WSJ was the first to report it that the Justice Department Civil Rights Division is opening a full pattern and practice investigation to see if the Minneapolis Police Department had, you know, a system. Uh, sorry, rather a systemic uh, problem of of abusing African Americans or if their practices were abusive. Uh, and you know, if I can take a short victory lap, uh, I wrote a piece about this for the Bulwark, calling, you know, saying this pretty obviously demands a pattern and practice investigation. Uh, 10 months ago in June. So, you know, I am sure there are all sorts of procedures and things that go into launching one of those investigations. And maybe they were waiting for the end of this trial. But uh, we may get the answers to some of those questions from the DOJ now who are going to go very meticulously, I'm sure, through what's going on in the Minnesota Police Department. And, uh, you know, that is sort of one of the DOJ's jobs. And uh, hopefully we'll, you know, hopefully something will come of it. Yeah, hopefully something will come of it. But I, I do I do think I have to say this, though, and, and I think this is really important. And I, I know that I'm going to be misunderstood. And I know that there's probably going to be some blowback for this. But, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the years um, in journalism, particularly doing things live, is that when there is an incident like this, it is so important for people to take a deep breath and not rush to judgment. And this is really true uh, with these, with the, the police shootings and with the videotapes. And 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 again, um, you know, there has been a rush to judgment on on and on, on, frankly on 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 both sides. You know, for example, last night we went to bed uh, hearing about a 15 year old girl that had been uh, gunned down by by police, and it sounded absolutely horrific. It sounded terrible. This morning we wake up and we see some of the videotape that makes it look much more ambiguous. And I'm when I say much more ambiguous, I'm saying that uh, she's in the process of wielding a knife and trying to stab another girl when this took place. So the initial reports may not have been true. Uh, the case out of uh, Missouri, uh, you know, the hands up, don't shoot. Um, that turns out not to have been exactly what people thought it was in the beginning. Uh, the the horrific videotape uh, from Kenosha, Wisconsin, uh, where the police officer shot a man in the back uh, seven times. That officer is back on duty right now. The prosecutors declined to bring any charges whatsoever because it turns out that uh, the, the 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 man involved, the perpetrator in, in involved, actually had a knife, and they really did fear for the safety of the children. Again, I, I'm I'm not justifying these. Things. I'm just saying that these cases sometimes are not necessarily the way they are described in the first few hours. And I think it's very important if you're going to get a handle on this, not to seize on the cases that might be 
might not be what they seem. Do you understand what I'm saying here? I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of the resistance that you're going to get to systemic reform will come from people who say, well, what about this case? You said that the cop did this, but it turns out that's not the, the way it actually played out. So getting it right has always been important and it's never been more important than it is right now. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's also one of the reasons why the results of the Derek Chauvin trial were encouraging. I mean, the whole theory of juries is that when you get 12 people who are, you know, go through a voir dire process and are sworn to uphold the law in a trial and you do a whole trial process based on evidence and you, you know, make the best arguments in an adversarial process, they can reach an independent decision, right? And right. that's sort of the part that Tucker and Candace Owens were ignoring. They were pretending like it was a media circus. And as you pointed out, ignoring the whole fact that there was an evidence-based, you know, courtroom adversarial process where the defense got to make its best arguments and the prosecution got to make its best arguments and they reached a unanimous verdict, right? Uh, so, you know, I, we, we, we can't try these things in the press, the it the, the you know well, you never on Twitter or on I mean, tw- exactly yeah. you can't try this on Twitter, but then when you have a jury right and they reach a verdict, you can't then say oh well it was political pressure it was the media's fault like no we don't try these things in the media that's the whole point. Well, this is the problem. I mean, you, what you're getting is, and I, I see the Joe Walsh show, woke Joe Walsh has tweeted out that he has a million followers on Facebook and overwhelm, and a lot of these are Trump folks type. Uh, uh, that uh, overwhelmingly, the sentiment is that the the jury was intimidated, bullied, which of course is the line you're getting on Fox News. I, I will admit that I spent more time listening to this trial than I usually do. It's the kind, you know. Um, and I have to tell you, the 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 prosecution did an absolutely fantastic job. I mean, the evidence was overwhelming on top of overwhelming. Um, I really would have been shocked had they come up with this. But again, there's two things about this case that really I, I, I keep coming back to. Number one is the role of the bystanders um, and who were the, the witnesses that uh, that that bouquet of humanity. Um, this would have played out totally different had they not done their civic duty. That's number one. Number two, this trial was the most dramatic example of the breakdown of the uh, blue wall of silence that I can recall. I'm sure there have been other cases. Uh, people will email me them. Um, but it was really something hearing, you know, one police officer after another testify against Chauvin, uh, the lieutenant, uh, the police chief, uh, people who were involved in training. So that at the end, when the prosecution was summing up, they were able to say to the jury, this is not an anti-police prosecution. This is not anti-police. This is, you know, good police officers recognize that this was wrong. That struck me as as a real uh, inflection point, and perhaps in all of this, that that look, um, simply because a cop has done something bad does not then impose an obligation on other cops to look the other way or pretend that it wasn't a bad thing. Yeah, I didn't follow the uh, the trial quite as closely as you did, but the part that resonated with me, based on what I did see, was the uh, the paramedic who was there and who testified oh, yeah. in the trial, who had offered, you know, I, I think he's having trouble breathing. I, I you know, I, I I can help him, and was told, no, stay back, don't help save this man's life. And you figured that paramedic <clears throat> and Derek Chauvin both worked for the city of Minneapolis, and between the two of them both, you know, paid and funded and equipped by, you know, the taxpayers of Minneapolis, which one of them was providing a public good? 
Well, and I think that that's, you know, part of this picture that the prosecution painted here, that in real time, um, people were saying, look what's happening. You are killing him. This woman steps up and says, you know, I, I, I can I can help. And she is rudely re- rebuffed. And then, of course, you have the evidence of your own eyes. OK, let's talk a little bit about the politics of all of this. Um, the 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 anti anti chauvinism. Interesting that yesterday, what did on the day that this verdict came down, what was the House of Representatives doing? It was voting on a resolution to censure Maxine Waters who had said that she wanted a guilty verdict and said there'd be more confrontation. Um, look, I, I don't think she should have said it. I, I think that people should have been much more careful. On the other hand, her rhetoric was pretty generic. And this moment of watching all of these Republicans voting to censure her, including many of them who had engaged in much more incendiary rhetoric when it came to January 6th. And this is not whataboutism. It's like, are you kidding me? Hakeem Jeffries uh, had a press conference where he talked about Kevin McCarthy getting all indignant. I, this is just terrible. We have to have the Congress of the United States condemn this one Democrat for saying this one thing. And, and let me just play this. Hakeem Jeffries, I thought, you know, is turning around and saying, are you kidding? You know, maybe you ought to clean up your own aisle over there, Kevin. When you think that uh, Kevin McCarthy has the nerve to say something about anyone when he supported the violent insurrection after the mob attacked the Capitol, threatened to assassinate Nancy Pelosi, kill other members of Congress, hang Mike Pence. He then came back to the Capitol, voted to support the big lie, which ignited the violent insurrection and continues to play footsie with Donald Trump. When you've got a situation where Lauren Boebert is a mess, Matt Gates is a mess. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a mess. Clean up your mess, Kevin. Sit this one out. <laughs> That's pretty good, I thought. It, uh, it is, <clears throat> from what I understand and can judge, uh, entirely too generous to Kevin McCarthy because it assumes that he has either the political sway to do something about the members of his uh, conference or, you know, the the spine to do anything to discipline any members of his conference which from everything we've seen he does not um either way the most egregious i think uh call for violence came from none other than louis gohmert who i believe said before the january 6th insurrection go out onto the streets and be violent that might be a slight paraphrase but uh yeah, compared to what Maxine Waters said, which she should not have said, it goes in the long list of things in history that Maxine Waters should not have said. But compared to what she said, of you know, the protesters have to be more—I uh, don't want to—I don't, I don't remember what she said, but uh, you know, have to be more whatever she said. Uh, go out and be violent is significantly worse. Yes, go go out and be violent using those words, and then of course you had Mo Brooks talking about you know today's the day to kick ass and etc. Et so yes. Uh, if irony had not been beaten to death by hammers about 10,000 times before, <laughs> this would have been. Now, I guess I was a little bit disappointed that, that uh, you know, even Republicans like Adam Kinzinger went along with this. And Kinzinger says, uh, well, I'm being consistent. OK, I get that. I, you know, it's like you condemn everybody that engages in uh, in excessive rhetoric. But um, really, as far as I know, has there been a vote in the House of censuring any of these Republicans for any of their their rhetoric whatsoever? But see, this is what's useful about it. 
it, and I, I wrote about this yesterday in my newsletter, is a, it, that it, it, it's, it's not just that they're setting up a talking point that the Democrats own all the violence that we're not going to see, uh, but also it's a way of historical revisionism, of dropping what happened in January 6th into the memory hole by having all of this. Well, if you think that what Trump did was bad, let's look at Maxine Waters. Let's, let's be, and, and Maxine Waters makes the perfect foil for Republicans. I mean, they would obviously love to make, you know, her the face for obvious reasons for the, you know, their own reasons, you know, the face of the left and of the Democrats. But the fact that it actually came to a vote in the House of Representatives yesterday uh, during all of this was, uh, I don't know, as pathetic too weak a word. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it is disheartening. It is uh, sort of maddening, uh, you know, especially considering, you know, there's been so much debate lately about you know things that matter, things that really do matter. You know, uh, infrastructure and 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 uh, you know, I guess more COVID relief or you know whatever they've been talking about recently. But uh, whatever happened to that whole package of reforms that we were talking about that were going to happen in the post-Trump era? And you know, presidents would have to release their tax returns, and they couldn't, uh, you know, uh, put their children in charge of the White House. And there were going to be reforms to the vacancies process, which Trump abused. And I'm starting to get a little bit concerned that uh, all of that sort of important reform stuff to prevent another authoritarian moment is sort of being forgotten, or eh, we'll save it for later, we'll get another chance. And uh, instead, what the time you know, that we actually are spending on legislation is, you know, for stuff that is uh, important, but to me of lesser importance, uh, not systemic importance. And then, you know, we're wasting more time on like trying to censure Maxine Waters, you know, when, you know, there's still like an active authoritarian party in the country. Uh, you know, we, I, th- I don't think we have our priorities quite in order. Yeah, no, no kidding. Uh, ben Parker, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it uh, very much today. And uh, people should check out uh, Ben's piece about anti-anti-chauvinism, which is like, it's worth it just for the, the phrase, anti-anti-chauvinism. I mean, when you understand what's going on here, it, it, will, it will bring a lot into uh, in, into focus. Also, a quick reminder, we're going to talk about this more. We'll be doing, I think we're going to be talking with uh, Kim Whaley on the podcast uh, tomorrow. And of course, uh, Thursday night, we have the uh, Bulwark Plus exclusive live stream and the whole group is going to get together. Well, uh, I'm sure that we're going to be talking about this uh, as well as the the, the whole um, woke mob I- I issue. Um, but I didn't want to devote the entire podcast uh, today to just one subject. Let's change gears and directions uh, in the second half of today's podcast, because I want to talk about uh, Clarence Thomas, Section 230, and the Republican Party's bizarre turn into trust busting when it comes to big tech. And and we're joined by Baron Zoka, who's the president of Tech Freedom. This is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank that defends the open Internet and um, largely uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency uh, Act, and which is, of course, under under siege from both parties. So, uh, first of all, um, welcome to the podcast, Baron. Thanks for having me. Big fan, longtime listener. Well, I appreciate it. I, let, can we just start with, with with Clarence Thomas? Because I'm trying to figure out where he's coming from and what's going on here. And I, I know it's unfair ever to bring up the spouse or a family member of, of a member of the Supreme Court. Um, but I can't help thinking that there's something going on here. Uh, Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, is not just a partisan. I mean, she is an ideologue uh, who flies her 
freak flag from deep inside of the fever swamps. And she's been going on these rants, uh, like a lot of other folks on the right, about big tech. And then Clarence Thomas comes out with this concurrence about platform regulation that felt like it came out of far right field. So is the is this is this unfair to, to even bring up Ginny Thomas in the context of what we're about to talk about about the the Clarence Thomas uh, concurrence opinion? No, it's not unfair at all because what we're really talking about here is conservatives led by Justice Thomas trying to use the power of the government to force private websites to allow people like his wife to spew crazy. People like his wife have been taken down, such as the president, for spreading misinformation about the last election, inciting people to violence, and so on. That's what this debate is about. His wife is one of those people, and he's essentially arguing that she has a First Amendment right to speak on private websites and say whatever she wants. And in fact, the First Amendment says the opposite, that private companies get to decide who they will associate with and who they won't. Well, this is what makes this so bizarre because, again, you, you, you said this is what conservatives are talking about. Conservatives, let's unpack that. Conservatives talking about using the power of government to compel private companies to do things that they've chosen not to do. Up to five minutes ago, that is exactly 180 degrees opposite of what conservatives claimed their, their position was, correct? Or am I missing well, something? Yeah. I mean, you said this came out of yeah. far right field. In a way, it came out of far left field. I mean, if you rewind to the 1960s, it was the radical left that was making precisely these arguments. It was called media access theory. And it was the well, idea that yeah. the First Amendment was not a shield against the government. It was actually a sword. And that sword could be used to ensure that media was fair and uh, gave everyone a voice to speak. And that's something that conservatives fought tooth and nail for decades. Remember, they opposed the Fairness Doctrine. President Reagan ended that in 1987, saying that it just wasn't the government's job to police the neutrality or fairness of, of private media. And we just had to leave that to the market. And conservatives said that all the way through the 2016 Republican platform. In theory, they still say it today because they, of course, recycled that platform. But their, their actions in the last three years have been exactly the opposite. They're seeking to force private websites to carry people like Donald Trump and Jenny Thomas and other people who violate their terms of service. Okay. The other thing that that strikes me as just as, as a little mind-blowing is this whole debate about Section 230. Now, you know a lot more about it than I do, so, so you know, feel free to correct me on all of this. Now, this is the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and its main, you know, the, 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 the main impact is that it, it allows these platforms to engage in moderation to decide what they're going to run and not their, uh, their uh, you know, what, what's going to show up and what, what they will uh, edit out without fear of liability. Okay, so they can't be, they, they are free to be able to do this without, um, without fear of liability. If, if, if Section 230 were to disappear, though, doesn't that make it more dangerous for the platforms to carry nutty, inflammatory, libelous material? I mean, doesn't that have the opposite effect of what some people on the right seem to think it would have? Uh, yes. And to explain why, you have to understand that Section 230 does two very different things. 
mostly 98% of the cases are about websites being sued for content that they host or, or for example, users being sued for content that they retweet. Donald Trump himself invoked Section 230 to avoid being sued when he retweeted someone else's defamation. So that's that's the, the heart of the law. You're not liable for, for content created by third parties that you somehow make available to others, whether you're a big website or a small website or a user. And in that sense, Section 230 changed the common law because there were two court decisions in the early 90s that held that websites actually would become liable either if they should have known about unlawful content or if they made efforts to to moderate that content. Hmm. Uh, so that's the debate that we used to be having about Section 230. For example, should they have to do more about online drug sales or, or sex trafficking or or whatever? And, and let's say reasonable people can disagree uh, about that. But now we're having a completely different debate, which is about the other thing that Section 230 does. And you summarize that yourself. It says that you can't be held liable for taking down third-party mm-hmm. content. You see the difference. Now, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very different as a practical matter, but also as a legal matter, there's a really important difference here. The first function changed the common law. So it, it protected websites from, from liability that they would have faced. But this protection for content moderation, it didn't change the common law. It merely protects the First Amendment right that websites have anyway to remove content. But it still does something really important. It says that if you're sued for moderating other people's content, you don't have to slog through constitutional litigation, which can cost millions of dollars. You can get that lawsuit dismissed upfront at the motion to dismiss stage, mm-hmm. usually, right? And that's really important because at the scale of the internet, where you have billions of, of pieces of content being posted every day and, and millions of content moderation decisions being made, if you can't resolve these things quickly, these lawsuits, the, the, the theoretical protection of the First Amendment is kind of worthless. So on the one hand, Section 230 is really vital. But on the other hand, conservatives are just misleading everyone when they say that, oh, it's, it's Section 230 that enables this, uh, what they call censorship, just, just content moderation. Uh, really, it's not. Really, it's the First Amendment that gives private websites the right to decide whose speech they want to carry and not. This seems pretty straightforward. But okay, let's talk about uh, the Clarence Thomas and and why I said it seemed like it came out of far right or far left field. It's a concurrence on a completely separate case. This is the case uh, Biden versus Knight, which was basically suing um, you know, challenging uh, President Trump blocking his critics on Twitter and the court. The court tossed it out as being moot, which, again, seems pretty you know clear. But but then Clarence Thomas issues this concurrence in the case that you write in uh, Lawfare. And if people can look this up, uh, a very detailed discussion of this on the Lawfare blog, uh, uh, Justice Thomas's misguided concurrence on platform regulation. But but you point out that see, he, he tacks on this concurrence that you write could have implications well beyond the Twitter accounts of politicians. And and there are conservatives who are celebrating what Thomas wrote as a roadmap for reigning in the social media giants. So is it? Well, it's uh, it's been called the concurrence that launched a thousand op-eds. So as a political matter, (laughs) 
it 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 really is important. This is really, I would say, a, a phase change in the debate, mm. and it's Justice Thomas embracing what I would say is, uh, quite frankly, is a nakedly political role. But let, let let me explain just briefly what the case that actually wasn't really before the court was about. So mm. so you said it's a concurrence in a case that that makes it sound like this is a, a normal decision by the court. And this is just one uh, one of the justices weighing in with their opinion. But that's not really what happened. This is remember the court does two basic things: it rules on cases, doesn't take very many of them, uh, and then it rejects the vast majority of cases that it's asked to to take. And this is actually one of those latter cases. So the court was asked to review a lower court decision, uh, and the court just said, "No, we're not going to do that." And normally that would be it. It would just be listed among cases that the court decided not to take. But in this case, Justice Thomas does something that he does more than any other justice, which is he uses that occasion to issue an opinion saying we should have taken this case. Now, that's not inappropriate in itself. The the problem here is that he's using this case, which is is about, as you said, the ability of a politician to block people on on his Twitter page to talk about something completely different, which is Twitter's ability or Facebook's or any other website, their ability to block users who violate their terms of service. So you see he's he's really just using this as, as an opportunity to just freestyle and to promote a bunch of arguments that really, as I say, come from this, this discredited media access theory of the extreme left of the 1960s. Uh, to to make arguments that uh, until a few years ago conservatives would have found utterly ridiculous and, and and they're even actually totally contradicted by his own positions in past cases so that's that's the posture of this case just just really briefly let me just explain the, the case below this is the Knight case yeah uh, in a nutshell this gets a little confusing because some people say well how can how can Donald Trump's Twitter page be a public forum but but Twitter not yeah. be a public forum, right? Well, the answer is pretty simple, right? So a public forum is is government property or the equivalent of government property where you have a right to speak and the government can't limit that right except with um, neutral time, place, and manner restrictions. That's a very high level uh, summary. And what the court below said uh, is that uh, just as if you, if you organize, let's say you're the mayor of a small town and you organize a regular meeting at a private hotel, well, the private hotels is a, is a private forum. It's private property. But the meeting space that you use is a limited public forum. And you, the mayor, you can't kick people out because you don't like their views. And the court said exactly the same thing applies for Donald Trump's Twitter page. Uh, but that doesn't make uh, Twitter itself a public forum any more than Hilton Hotel becomes a public forum overall. I mean, Hilton can still kick people out just like Hotels refused to host uh, Josh Hawley's events after the uh, January 6th insurrection. So that's actually a, it's not Hmm. that hard a case, Um, but that's really not the issue that he wants to talk about. Thomas wants to talk about forcing websites uh, to host speech that they don't want to host. So, you know, one of the things that we've been hearing on the right is that we ought to treat, we ought to treat these platforms like, like utilities, like public utilities, which, which again, I am old enough to remember when ideas like that were confined to the left, when they were basically talking about this, instead of thinking of them as private actors, private companies to treat them like a utility. I mean, that's, that's the direction 
that that Thomas and others are going right now? Uh, yeah, roughly. Uh, and roughly. now, now more, more more concretely, the model he invokes two models of regulation, and one of them is is very similar to utility regulation. It's called common carriage. Yes. So so if you're a railroad, uh, the government can can regulate the prices that you charge, and essentially it ensures that you have to treat similarly situated people equally. And that that's an old concept. It applies to uh, innkeepers and uh, and, and uh, toll road operators and bridges and, and so on. Uh, and, and it's true that common carriage regulation was applied to uh, some communications networks. So most notably, the, the telephone network uh, is a common carrier. Now, Justice Thomas asserts that we can apply that same framework to websites, uh, but we can't. And, and it's, it's not really hard to, to understand why. Uh, when you get a, a hate call on the phone, uh, you, don't, you don't blame the phone company. You don't, you don't assume that they're responsible because they offer a, a neutral conduit, right? They don't, they don't edit the content that, uh, that goes over the phone network. Uh, they don't hold themselves out uh, as, um, as providing you a, a, a family-friendly service or anything uh, like that. Uh, so they're really fundamentally different from websites and, and not just websites today, but if you go back even to the early 1990s, you see that internet service providers and, and the proto-social networks that we had in the early 90s, all of them held themselves out as doing something that's completely the opposite of common carriage, right? Common carriers say, we will serve everyone equally, and we're not going to interfere with the decisions that you make, right? Uh, Social media today have, as everyone knows, have community standards that say, we don't allow X, Y, and Z. And this is not new. And I I just want to share with you as an example of of, of what this looked like in the early 90s, uh, Prodigy, you may remember. uh, I do. Prodigy, CompuServe, right? Those were early social networks. Well, in one of those early critical cases, uh, the, the early social network advertised itself in newspapers saying, we make no apology for pursuing a value system that reflects the culture of the millions of American families we aspire to serve. Certainly no responsible newspaper does less when it chooses the type of advertising it publishes, the letters it prints, the degree of nudity and unsupported gossip its editors tolerate. That That is what social networks from the earliest days have always held themselves out as doing. It is the exercise of editorial control, and it's essentially no different from newspapers. Well, let me read you something from from your article and have you explain it. Uh, Thomas, in his concurrence, Thomas cites a case called Turner Broadcasting versus the FCC, in which the Supreme Court upheld forced carriage under the First Amendment. In, In that case, the court ruled that cable companies must carry local broadcasters channels for free. Major case. Turner seems to parallel conservatives' contemporary arguments about big tech. Quote, when an individual subscribes to cable, the physical connection between the television set and the cable network gives the cable cable operator bottleneck or gatekeeper control over most, if not all, of the television programming that is channeled into the subscriber's home. A cable operator, unlike speakers and other media, can silence the voice of competing speakers with a mere flick of the switch. So explain why do you think that the comparison between the cable companies and the media platforms doesn't work? Okay, so, so the court was confronted with a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have newspapers and other 
media that have full First Amendment rights to not carry whatever content they want to carry for whatever reason, right? That's really well established under the Miami Herald case in 1974. On the other end of the spectrum, you have telephone networks. And the question that the court confronted in Turner, 1994, is are, are cable operators more like the telephone network or are they more like newspapers? Because the, And this is essentially the same argument we're having today, which is why Thomas focuses on the Turner case. And as, as you noted, uh, the court ultimately upheld mandates that uh, local, local uh, broadcasters could get their channels carried on the local cable system. But the reason that they, that they upheld that is, is really important, right? So th- that, that analysis of gatekeeper power, right? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, that, they were literal gatekeepers. There was only one pipe to the home. If you wanted to get what we now call cable service, which was then called multi-channel video programming distribution service, if you wanted to get that, cable was your only option. That was it. So it wasn't, it wasn't market power. It wasn't like what Google or Facebook or Twitter have today. It was really one pipe. Uh, so that that's clearly not true today for social media, no matter how popular they are. Uh, but, but more importantly, uh, Turner really wasn't about editorial control. So in Turner, the complaint the cable companies had was that uh, the government was essentially seizing a third of their channel capacity and saying, uh, you got to give this to local broadcasters and you can't charge for it. And of course, that hurt their bottom line. Now, that's, that is a kind of regulation that is sometimes imposed on media companies. It's, it's economic regulation, essentially. But the cable providers never objected to the nature of the content that they were carrying. They didn't say, well, we don't want to be associated with, uh, with Nazi speech or Holocaust denial or, or whatever. Uh, it, was, it was purely economic. And so the court uh, didn't have to confront the issues that it has to confront today, which is really, can you compel a private company to be associated with speech that it finds reprehensible? And in fact, the court specifically noted that there was a long history of cable companies carrying and indeed being forced to carry local broadcasters. And, and nobody, nobody blamed the cable company for content that they saw on the broadcast channel. They just didn't associate it with them. And that's really the critical First Amendment point here. It's, you, you can't force a private entity to, to associate itself with speech that it finds reprehensible. Okay, so that is the key that is the key principle. So how do conservatives like Clarence Thomas reconcile that with their position again up till 5 minutes ago about the photographers who didn't want to photograph gay weddings or the the bake shop uh that did not want to make the the the, the cake wasn't that their argument that no one should be compelled or or is it, or do they make some sort of a distinction there because i mean it seems it seems very much like the same thing they're arguing you can't force this private company to violate its its religious conscience or whatever by um associating them with something with which they disagree and yet isn't that exactly what they're doing with the platforms now uh uh, yes that is exactly what they're doing and thomas doesn't even try to distinguish the two things directly he he invokes another model of Regulation. So we talked about common carriage. You have to treat everybody equally. He he then says, well, maybe even if they're not common carriers, maybe we could regulate them like public accommodations, right? Where that where they are required not to discriminate. So 
the Masterpiece Cake Shop, where the, the baker in Colorado was required to bake a cake for a gay wedding. He was charged under for discriminating under Colorado's public accommodations law. And Thomas says that sort of thing should apply to social media. He, hmm. And in general, their argument boils down to the same idea that we've just talked about a moment ago, that just like cable providers are neutral conduits that, that, that just, just like the telephone network, they just, they just serve content and that's it. Uh, so, so they're like railroads. They claim that, um, that there's no, there's no risk of association between the neutral conduit and the speech it carries. And that, that might be true of the telephone network still, but again, it, it's clearly not true of websites and, and the, the, the critical, I mean, I, any more than, um, you know, the, the baker, He's he, he doesn't want to bake the cake for the gay wedding because it's an, in his mind it's an endorsement of the gay wedding, and and note that the court, including Justice Thomas, they upheld his right to do that, even though guests at the wedding wouldn't necessarily know that he had baked the cake. Right. right? So even there, he had the right to to do that. But but here, just think about what we're talking about. This isn't like the telephone network where you don't really know who's saying what. Social media in general. But there's some private messaging functions, of course. But in general, it's a public record like a newspaper. And, you know, you can go on Parler right now and you can find very quickly openly Nazi content. And, you know, that reflects on Parler's judgment about what kind of speech it wants to host. And it's very difficult to find that sort of content on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube because because they won't allow it. And that those curation decisions are and exactly like the curation decisions that newspapers make. But there's another analogy that I think answers your question, which is uh, parades. I mean, back in 1995, conservatives cheered when the court, including Justice Thomas, ruled that the St. Patrick's Day parade in Boston could not be compelled under the state's public accommodation, anti-discrimination law to allow LGBT marchers to carry signs in the parade. And this exactly the same arguments were made where people said, look, you know, the parade is just a conduit for speech. People should be able to say what they want. And the court, all the conservatives and, and some of the liberals uh, said, no, the parade is a curated event. And people look at the signs and they, they assess the parade overall. And the signs are just like notes in a symphony, right? They're part of a larger expressive output. And the same is true on a larger scale of Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and, and every other website out there today. Okay, let's look at this from the other point of view because there are there are conservatives who will listen to this who will say, okay, uh, yes, we need to be concerned about the free speech rights of private companies, but they are also framing this in terms of free speech, right? Uh, that that they don't want to be canceled, and their argument would be would go something like this: that that, that things like Google and Facebook and Twitter, well, Google and Facebook particularly have become so massive, so influential that the potential for censorship um, is, you know, has, has, has become a matter of public concern. So, for example, um, we're all in favor of I'm in favor of tech freedom. I'm in favor of, of free speech. But is there a you know, there are dangers. What if, for example, Facebook decided that they were going to ban a whole range of ideas and speech, not just Nazis? But let's say, you know, um, uh, you know, any statement by Republicans, what if 
uh, Mark Zuckerberg said around election time, we are only going to be carrying uh, we're only going to be carrying information about Democratic candidates, and we are only going to be targeting information about uh, get out the vote to certain demographic groups. What, what 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 would be your reaction? Would they be able to do that, and ought they be able to do that under the law? Well, uh, again, the question is not whether they should be able to do that under the law. It's whether they should be able to do that under the Constitution. And the First Amendment here is is very clear. Uh, you. Your, your so-called monopoly power does not matter. We'll just we'll, we'll come back to Turner in a second. But as a general matter, let, let's look at 1974. I mentioned Miami Herald. So Miami Herald, is, to, to my mind, is the most important decision in the 20th century about the First Amendment. And basically, it was 1913 Florida law imposed fairness doctrine requirements on newspapers. So if there was a, a political candidate who was criticized in the paper paper had to host a reply from that candidate on its editorial page. And the court struck that down and said, no, you you can't require private newspapers to host speech that they don't want to host. And and critically, the court noted that even in the 1970s, most media markets, and especially in small towns, uh, had only one source of news. There was a a true monopoly. There was one newspaper, and often that newspaper might have might have been co-owned by the radio station. And the court said, it, it doesn't matter. You can have a monopoly and it doesn't change your First Amendment rights. The only exception to that was the Turner case, where again, the, the cable provider exercised not just monopoly power, but a true degree of, of absolute flip the switch gatekeeper control that was granted to it by the government. Because remember, the reason the cable companies had that that monopoly power at that point was that local franchises, your your local town, your county, only licensed one provider to use the public rights of way. So it was it was a government created monopoly, and they exercised it, and that that was held to be to be enough to justify again economic regulation in that case. But if if the cable providers in that case had objected on grounds of the uh, nature of the content, if, if their objection was really editorial, even that gatekeeper power wouldn't have mattered because the level of scrutiny would have been higher. This is a point that is is difficult um, sometimes for, for people to follow, but it's really important that, you know, generally speaking, the court uh, applies strict scrutiny, which means that regulations almost always die because you've got to show that there's a compelling government interest, there's, there's no less restrictive means available and the regulation is narrowly tailored to that. And only rarely when speech is involved uh, and, and the regulation is deemed to be neutral, does the court say, okay, we won't apply strict scrutiny. We'll apply this more relaxed form of intermediate scrutiny. And only then did that that gatekeeper power matter. So again, Turner is really an outlier. It's not going to apply in cases where the uh, private parties object on the na- basis of the content at issue. And it also won't apply when there's reason to think that the regulation is actually aimed in a non-content neutral way. It's aimed at keeping certain content up. And, and in the case of of, uh, of Turner with cable, the, the idea was we're going to keep uh, local broadcasting alive. Uh, the court said that's a, a neutral regulation. Ironically, it was Justice O'Connor joined by Justice Thomas who said, no, that's not neutral. That's favoring some speech over others. Now that was a debatable point hmm. then, but here, here it's not debatable. It's very obvious 
that the reason for these mandates is to force websites to keep up certain kinds of speech that today's Republican Party finds politically useful. Hate speech, misinformation about elections, vaccines, and so on, and and a variety of other forms of content that websites decide they're not going to host. So can we separate out the content regulation um, from the potential of economic regulation, for example, you know, antitrust actions against, uh, say, you know, Google or Facebook. Uh, I don't know whether you saw it. There's a small newspaper chain in Wisconsin that has just filed a an antitrust action against Google. And of course, this has become a major issue in local media where, you know, local media is dying on the vine um, in, in, in part because uh, platforms like Google are sucking up uh, 90% or more of the ad revenue. Uh, so is that a is that related? Is that is that separate? Um, would the court look differently on that kind of trust busting, antitrust uh, economic uh, approach to the the platform dominance as opposed to the content regulation? Uh, short answer is yes. Well, let's take the economics and then the law. On the economics, uh, it's it's really Craigslist that killed. The sure local is. newspaper business model. Yeah, classifieds were mm-hmm. the bread and butter of local newspapers. Okay. And Craigslist very quickly made that uh, uh, something that no one would pay for. So yes, it, it's it's not as simple as blaming the the big platforms. Technological change is, is always difficult. And uh, I, I would just say, without going into a long uh, discussion about this, I would say that the most important thing for journalism is to ensure that advertising can continue to be profitable. And if, if, if you're concerned about that, you should be really concerned about people who want to restrict the use of, of data to target ads, because that has the effect of making ads less profitable for publishers. Right. But that's, that's not really what we're focused on. Instead, we're trying to blame big tech for everything. Now, your, your legal question. Uh, yeah, there is a difference. So media companies in general are not immune from the antitrust laws. And that goes back to the Supreme Court's decision in Associated Press in the 1940s. Uh, They very clearly said that uh, Lorraine Journal, 1951, uh, a local newspaper, um, yeah, it it gets to decide which ads it wants to carry. But if it's refusing to carry ads uh, in order to enforce a boycott among local businesses against the new radio station in town, that's not editorial judgment. That's that's an abuse of economic power, and that is something hmm. that the antitrust laws can can, hmm. can punish. So so the short answer is, uh, antitrust laws can be enforced here for economic conduct. You know, for the, the let's say the fees that are charged, or how Google runs its uh, its advertising platform, and so on. Uh, but what you can't do is what conservatives are now trying to do, and they're saying this quite openly. They're they're, they're complaining about what they call censorship. And then they're saying we should do something about it with the antitrust laws. And that's that's just not going to fly in court. It's not a cognizable economic injury. It's uh, something the First Amendment protects. Let's go back to uh, to Clarence Thomas. Um, again, you know, so people that understand this is a, a concurrence that is you, you point out is it's a non-binding statement. It was issued without briefing. Is there any indication that other members of the court share Thomas's views on this issue of the social media platforms, or is he an outlier? 
Is any well, of the any of the other conservatives you think might be sympathetic uh, might join Thomas in the future? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's a little hard to say because these issues really haven't come before the court, and the reason they haven't come before the court really is Section two hundred and thirty. Section two hundred and thirty again has avoided the courts having to deal with these constitutional issues because when websites are sued for moderating content today. Those, those lawsuits are tossed out generally on Section 230 grounds. And then sometimes the courts will say that the website is not a public forum. But these other questions he's he's inviting people to sue over just really haven't been litigated. So so we don't know. I, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if I had to speculate if uh, Justice Alito might be somewhat sympathetic. But, but more broadly, uh, he's actually running contrary to the general current of thought among conservative judges and indeed among conservative justices. Justice Scalia was the greatest champion for the First Amendment uh, ever. This surprises some people. Uh, But it was he, for example, who said in in 2010 that the principles of the First Amendment uh, do not vary as new media emerge. So in that case, the court extended equal protection to video games. Uh, So if you read his decisions carefully, if you look at other decisions the court has handed down, I think you actually come away with the very clear impression that uh, that they would take a technologically neutral approach to content regulation. Uh, they, I noted that in the in the Turner case in 1994, it was the conservatives uh, who were most skeptical. Right? It was it was they who were saying, "No, no, no! You you can't uh, force uh, private websites, to, or in that case, private uh, cable operators, uh, to do things." Uh, and your regulations even though you say they're content neutral, uh, they're not because they favor some speakers over others. So that would suggest that here, conservatives would take the same approach. And if, if, if a regulation favors some speakers over others or some content or viewpoints over others, it gets strict scrutiny and it will be shut down. So uh, that's all a way of saying, I think he's running in the opposite direction. Uh, but I would note in particular that Justice Kavanaugh has actually been extremely outspoken on some of the exact issues in this case uh, prior to joining the court. And, and this is this is the one other analogy that we haven't talked about, which is net neutrality. Uh, yes. So most people most people know, you know, net neutrality is basically the idea that your broadband company shouldn't block or throttle content. And some people on the right, even though conservatives fought net neutrality and called it Obamacare for the internet, some people on the right are now saying we need we need social media neutrality, uh, and they they forget uh, what someone like Justice Thomas said. Excuse me, what Justice Kavanaugh said uh, when that finally got litigated, uh, which is um, just basically the following: So, 2015, the Obama administration issues their updated net neutrality rules. Uh, Ted Cruz calls it Obamacare for the internet, <laughs> and and of course it goes up to the D.C. Circuit, which is really the second most important court in the country. And just, Judge Kavanaugh was then sitting on the court. Lower lower court, uh, lower panel of judges upheld the decision, and then it gets um, appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and, they, and the cable companies ask for a full rehearing, and the court denies. And Justice Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh then, writes this very long dissent saying uh, that you cannot treat broadband providers as common carriers, right? Exactly the same mm. issue that Thomas is raising now. You cannot treat them as common carriers because that infringes upon their First Amendment rights. So point number one, again, conservatives have been skeptical of common carriage regulation. Kavanaugh argued 
that it infringed upon First Amendment rights. So that so that was their position. But it's also important to note what the court said in response. So the two judges who had upheld the uh, FCC's open internet rules, which treated broadband providers as common carriers, said, look, there's no First Amendment problem here because the rules only apply to broadband providers that hold themselves out as serving everyone, as offering equally, serving uh, serving them connectivity to all endpoints of the internet without editorial intervention. So remember I mentioned railroads mm-hmm. yeah. at the outset? Essentially, the court was saying, look, if you if you operate like a railroad, if you say you're going to deliver service, you know your package gets from point A to point B, and that's it. If you say you're a neutral conduit, then you can be held through common carrier regulation to act like a neutral conduit. But importantly, the court said the opposite's also true. If you decide you're going to offer a family friendly service, just like I, I told you uh, mm-hmm. at the outset that we we heard from from Prodigy in the '90s that the the rules wouldn't apply to you and you wouldn't be treated as a common carrier. And if you were, then we would have to address Judge uh, Kavanaugh's First Amendment argument. So essentially, you see, Justice Thomas is now making the opposite of uh, of Kavanaugh's arguments. Well, this is the, we need to underline this point because when we say that you know conservatives are pushing for all of this, uh, as as you point out, no, not necessarily. Uh, this this is this I think comes as a surprise to some folks to realize that there are actual conservatives on the bench who are not necessarily going on along with this uh, fever swamp uh, new right approach to to free speech, and and that in the end. Uh, they may turn out to be a bulwark against some of these attempts to co-opt the free speech of of the platforms. I, I think that's exactly right. I think this is a just as with the election, where we saw the Republican Party march in right. in lockstep in uh, to Crazy Town. Uh, we're seeing every every Republican, every single one in Congress is is spewing the same nonsense today about yeah. about this sort of thing, and yet. Uh, the serious people on the, on the courts, with the exception of Justice Thomas, and I'm sure some of the lower court judges, uh, the serious people are still sticking to the the longstanding view of Justice Thomas, Justice Scalia, uh, previously Justice Thomas, and, and other conservatives that, in general, you can't compel people to associate with speech that they find reprehensible, and that's that's uh, as true for the patisserie as in Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, as it is for the platform. Well, let's leave it on that optimistic note uh, that, that, in fact, it may be conservatives who come to the rescue here. Uh, Baron Zoka, the president of uh, Tech Freedom. Baron, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.